Okay, this morning we are going to be back in Revelation. If you want to turn to Revelation 19, we left off there last week. Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, we are at the end of the tribulation. What we are seeing in Revelation 19 is the return of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb and how that fits into all of the scope of the events of the end times uh, with the rapture coming before the tribulation and the wedding of the church in heaven and then um, the marriage feast that will come during his kingdom. And so what we have here today as we read together verses 11 through 16 kind of goes back to earth and gives John's perspective as he sees the return of Christ, the literal return of Christ, his second coming. This is not the rapture. This is his second coming as he returns to the earth and, um, and then the events that follow that. And so let's read 11 through 16 today and uh, we'll see what God has for us in this passage. So starting at verse 11, this is what John says. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords." Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will have our lesson this morning. Our Father, Lord, we just come before you now and and submit ourselves to to your authority and the authority of your word. We know that it is absolute truth, and in and of ourselves, we cannot live truth. We cannot think or understand truth, but with your help, you can give us understanding today of this passage and the things that you want us to know. So, Lord, do your work in us. We pray for your spirit to open our minds to receive that which you have for us to learn. And, Lord, use me as your instrument now, as your mouthpiece, to speak the truth. Give me your spirit. Give me wisdom. Give me strength as I speak so that your truth might be proclaimed today and we might be challenged by you. And so, Lord, we just ask for your work and your blessing during this time, and may your word go forth with power. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we didn't start chapter 19, but we saw in chapter 19 after the praise service that was happening in heaven, um, the marriage feast and the marriage of the Lamb. And so we know that the church is that bride. We looked at that in detail and how all of that will work. But if we are the bride of Christ, wouldn't you like to know your groom? And so John is given a vision here in verse 11, and through 11, and in 11 through verse 16, we see the groom after the wedding as he comes back to earth to um, reclaim his kingdom, really, as it were, to reclaim the authority that he rightfully has. And so as we embark on this chapter in chapter 19, we actually arrive at what I would call the highlight of all of history. Now, for the church, we're looking forward to the rapture because then we're done with earth. But that's not the end, okay? That's the beginning of all the good stuff. But this event, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is the culmination of all history. This is what everything points to as far as earth's history is concerned because... Through all of earth's history, there have been nations, there have been kingdoms, there have been rulers on this earth that have been subpar, that have been evil, okay? And we can start listing, many of us who studied history know the dictators that have ruled with extreme hatred and evil on this earth and the harm that they brought to mankind. 
When Jesus comes back, he will be the perfect ruler that this earth has been waiting for, for over 4,000 years. And so at this point um, in Jesus, in the, in the events of the end times, Jesus is coming to earth to set up that kingdom. Now, there's several events that have to happen in that. Last week, we saw the marriage feast of the Lamb. That will be the first event in the kingdom. But there's an event that has to take place before that, and that's called the Great Battle of Armageddon. And we'll, we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But here, as John sees Jesus coming out of heaven... This gives him a picture, and actually it's a reflection uh, of what he saw back in John chapter 1, as he said, the heavens were opened and I saw the Lord, and he was all exalted, high and lifted up, okay? And so here he doesn't see Jesus in heaven, he sees the same Jesus coming back to earth. And so I want to give you John's description of him, and it gives us a picture of the groom that we will be married to during the millennial kingdom. So in verse 11, this is John's description of the returning Lord. And first he says, heaven is open. Again, this is similar to what he read in chapter 1, except in chapter 1, heaven was open and John was taken up to heaven to see the Lord in heaven. Here, heaven is open and the Lord descends. He's coming down to earth. So it's a little bit different, but the heavens are open so John can see. And what he sees right away is a white horse. This is Jesus riding a white horse. Now, this white horse is symbolic of, of some things that are important. The white horse or the white stallion is an animal of warfare. A white stallion is what a general would ride into battle and return from battle on in the Roman uh, military. And so here, Jesus is pictured as riding on a white horse. The white symbolizes both purity and victory, okay? And so Jesus, the pure one, is coming in victory here. Now, it's interesting that he comes in victory already, and yet the battle hasn't been fought on earth. But we know that if it's Jesus, he's not going to lose. If Jesus says he's going to win, it's already done, whether it's happened or not. Just like the promises he gives us every day. If he says it's going to happen, it will happen, And so this is his return in victory, even though the battle hasn't come yet, and he comes as a triumphant king. Now, in contrast, the first time he came, and we looked at this not quite a month ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a king, but he rode on a donkey. He rode into Jerusalem in humility, in meekness, bringing forgiveness and mercy. When Jesus comes the second time, It's not going to be in meekness and mercy. It's not going to be in forgiveness and humility. It's going to be in power and in triumph over his enemies. And there will be no mercy at this point. And so this is the picture that we see him coming as the conquering judge and king on the white horse. It goes on in verse 11. It says, he that sat on this horse is called faithful and true. This description of Jesus as faithful and true is in marked contrast to the leader that has been on the earth for the last seven years at the end of the tribulation. Remember, the Antichrist leads the world with guile and deceit. He lies like his father, who is the father of lies, Satan. And Satan has ruled as the prince of this world for roughly 6,000 years or more as the father of lies. And now finally, we have the perfect and right leader and ruler in Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of faithfulness and truth. And it's not that Jesus speaks truth. He does, but he is truth. It says his name is faithful and true, or he's called faithful and true. That means he, he is the embodiment, the personification of truth itself. Jesus is the standard of truth. And so he's bringing truth back to a world enveloped in lies and deceit. And it says he is called faithful. Now, we know Jesus is faithful. We sing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, all the time. But here, his faithfulness is demonstrated not just in that he will keep all his promises, but that he is keeping his promises, and that he is fulfilling everything that God has called him to be. God called him to be the king of the earth, 
God promised through David that a king from David's seed would reign and rule on the earth forever. And here it is happening. So his faithfulness is shown in that he is fulfilling everything that God said would happen through and of him. And so Jesus comes as the faithful and true judge to rule the nations, to establish his kingdom. It's the fulfillment of God's promise that he will send a king from David. And so Jesus is called faithfulness here. Now, we already know that. If you're a believer, you've experienced the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In salvation, he says, anyone who comes to him will not be turned away. If we come in faith, believing that he will cleanse us, he will forgive us. And so that is his faithfulness, that he will do those things as he promised in salvation, but also in sanctification, he continues to cleanse us as we submit to his spirit. He continues to provide for us. He continues to protect us. He continues to be there to comfort us. He is there because he is faithful. And so this Jesus that we see in his second coming is no different than the Jesus that we know right now. He is the king that conquered sin in our lives, and he will be faithful to the end. And so the word says he is called faithful and true. The next phrase says, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now, we know about his righteousness and how he judges, because Jesus is perfect. He's perfectly holy. He has no sin. And therefore, he can't be deceived by sin. He can't be deceived by man. Now, every judge that sits on a bench across the world today can't rule in perfect righteousness because he's not perfect, and he can't see into man's heart. And so he can be deceived by facts. He can be deceived by the swindlings of the people before him because they're not perfect. But Jesus will be the perfectly righteous judge because, number one, he knows everything, and he knows everything about every one of us. And so we can't deceive him. The men who stand before him on judgment day can't explain away their sin or their guilt because Jesus knows every thought and intent of the heart. And so he is a righteous judge. And what he deals out to men as their judgment is rightfully deserved by them because of their sin. Now, in grace and in mercy, he has spared those who believe from that judgment. We don't deserve that freedom. We, we deserve the judgment. We deserve the punishment. But even in his righteousness, because he shed his blood, he offers us salvation and freedom from that judgment. And so he's a perfectly righteous judge in, in everything he does. You know, the question is asked by many people, especially unbelievers. How could a loving God send so many people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. God created hell for Satan and his demons. And it's those people who choose to follow Satan and his demons in this life that will end up where Satan and his demons end up. They choose that life for themselves because they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. They reject him as their savior. So God is righteous perfectly in sending people to hell because that's where they've chosen to go. That's what their works and their life has earned them. And so Jesus is a righteous judge, and we saw as he judges even Babylon, the wicked Babylon, that he was righteous in destroying that city and that system because of its great sin and because it brought the entire world into that system of sin, not just in the end times, but going all the way back to right after the flood. But Jesus judges righteously, but the word says he also wages war righteously. Now you think about all the wars that have happened on the earth. How many of them have been righteous wars? Okay, most of the wars that have been fought on this earth are fought because of some ruler's greed or pride or his lust for power and control or just money and resources. Okay, that's the majority of the wars on this earth. People seeking more control or more wealth for themselves. And so those are wrong motivations for war. In fact, I would have to say probably every war on earth, except for the war that the Israelites fought against Canaan, because that was commanded by God for them to go in and cleanse the land of those people. 
But every other war, except for those commanded by God to Israel, has been basically an unrighteous war. It's man's motivations and selfishness and pride. When Jesus comes back and wars against his enemies and destroys them, it is an absolutely righteous war. He has the right motivation. He has the right substance behind it. He has the right approach and the right methodology. Everything about the way Jesus wages war is righteous. That's what this word tells us here. And so this is not just another war. This is the ultimate righteous war of Jesus Christ to eradicate sin from the earth. And we're going to look at the Battle of Armageddon in a few weeks as he literally exterminates his enemies and judges them for their sin. But this war, as the final judgment of all the wicked, will be carried out in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness, with all recipients receiving exactly the, same, exactly the sentence that they are due. Now, I've actually had people ask me, well, you know, isn't that, in essence, the same thing because Jesus is destroying everything else to get everyone to worship him? And that's what dictators do, right? Yeah, except Jesus is God. He deserves our worship. He's the one we should be worshiping. That's what makes every other war wrong. That's what makes every other dictator wrong. Because they exalt themselves as God and try to take his place. That's what Satan's sin was. That's why God cast him out of, out of uh, heaven and condemned him for all eternity. Because he wanted to take the place of God and be worshipped. And so every leader, every ruler, every dictator, every person who seeks worship for themselves is unrighteous in that motive. But Jesus deserves that worship. So no, even though he's seeking the worship of the world in getting rid of sin, he deserves that worship because he is God. And so it is an absolutely righteous war and righteous judgment that he brings to earth. And it goes on, it says, his eyes are a flame of fire. His eyes are a flame of fire. Now, we saw this description back in chapter 1 when John first saw the vision of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 14, this is John's description. He says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So it's the exact same description. This is the exact same Jesus that John saw at the beginning before the tribulation started. Before he saw all the judgment that was going to come upon the earth. This is the exact same Jesus that went up into heaven from earth after his resurrection. And this is the exact same Jesus that we will see when he calls us up to heaven from this earth as his church. And so now this Jesus is coming to earth with eyes of flaming fire. The symbolism of the flaming fire is that nothing is hidden from the burning gaze of Jesus Christ. Nothing can be hidden from him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Bible says, Therefore judge nothing before its time until the Lord will come who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart's and then shall every man have praise of God, talking about his judgment of mankind. Jesus sees all of us perfectly. You can't hide anything from him. His eyes burn through any veils, any boxes, any, any hidden contraptions that we can put in place to try to hide from the Lord, but he, get, he sees through everything. Now, we may present a facade or a performance to impress people, but Jesus knows our heart. He knows who we really are. And if we are not followers of him at the end when he judges, he knows exactly who we are. And that's why he said, uh, while he was on earth, there are going to be many at the end times who say, Lord, Lord, I came and I fed the poor, I healed the sick, I did all these things in your name. And Jesus is going to say, get behind me, depart from me. I never knew you. Because he sees what we really are. It's not about the outside. It's about what we are inside. And so Jesus comes with a flame of fire. He looks at his enemies and he knows the evil that resides there. And therefore, they deserve judgment. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 record Jesus' words. And he says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that it shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in the closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. 
we as believers will stand before him in judgment right after the rapture. It's called the Bema Seat. We talked a little bit about it last week. And we won't be able to say, well, you know, I did all these great things for you, Lord, because we're going to stand there speechless with nothing to say because he will tell us what we did and why we really did it. We can't hide from him. Nobody can hide from him. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so as Jesus comes, he comes with eyes of flaming fire to see through all of the charade and all of the performance of those who proclaim themselves to be Christians or good, but he knows their heart. Now, it's interesting. These are the same eyes of Jesus, our Savior, who came to earth to die, but when he was on earth, his eyes weren't described as flaming fire. When he came the first time on earth, those eyes reflected tenderness and compassion to the people who were suffering, and he healed them. Those eyes showed tenderness toward children that were brought to him. Those eyes reflected sorrow over those who would not believe. Those eyes reflected mercy and forgiveness to those who were of a broken spirit, even while he hung on the cross. Those were soft eyes of our Savior, but when he comes as judge, there's not going to be any softness left. It's eyes of judgment. When he comes back the second time, there's no more mercy. There's no more forgiveness. There will only be the flaming fire of judgment upon the wicked. And the Bible tells us that. Now you say, I don't understand how Jesus could be without mercy, without forgiveness. It's not that he's without mercy and without forgiveness when he comes back, because as he comes back the second time, every man that has ever li- lived has had every opportunity to repent They have had every opportunity to proclaim him as their Lord, to submit to him. And this is it. Judgment has to come eventually. And when Jesus comes the second time, the mercy, the time for mercy is over. And in fact, mercy won't be executed in his kingdom for a thousand years. It will be a rod of iron that we're going to see in just a minute in this description that he rules with. And so he comes with eyes of fire in judgment. This is not a Jesus who I would want to reckon with if I was not on his side when he comes back. Because when the people see him, they know exactly what's going to happen. And they are going to be overcome with fear. And then he's going to destroy them, and there is no recourse. So this is not a rush to judgment as Jesus comes to judge the wicked. He has shown his mercy and his love for thousands of years, and this is the final moment of judgment after all of those opportunities are passed. So repentance at this time for those who are left on the earth is impossible. If people have not repented before Jesus comes back the second time, it's too late. So the Bible says he has eyes of fire. It goes on, it says, on his head are many diadems. Now the word diadem is the word for a ruler's crown or a king's crown. It's not a crown of reward, it's a crown of authority. And so he comes back to the earth with many diadems. Not just one, he's wearing many diadems. And it shows that he has power over many nations, in fact, all nations. As we get to verse 16, it says he will be proclaimed king of kings and lord of lords. Think about that phrase, king of all kings, lord of all lords. And so he wears all diadems, all crowns of authority are given to Jesus Christ at this point. Now, in ancient times, when a king conquered another nation, he would, crown, he would take the crown of the king that he just conquered and he would put it on his own head. You can actually read an example of this in 2 Samuel when David conquers an enemy nation and he puts the crown on his own head. And so the, what he was giving a symbol of is this conquering king would come in wearing the crown of the conquered king. And so the people of the kingdom he just conquered would recognize that the authority has just been transferred from that old king to the new one. 
And that's what Jesus is symbolizing here. Wearing the crowns of all kings, he now has all authority over all nations and all people. And so he's wearing many crowns. Now remember, at this point, we're talking about the end of the tribulation when this will actually happen. We have the Antichrist basically wearing all the crowns, but he's got ten rulers working underneath him, the ten crowns of the beast. Remember that. They won't have those crowns. They won't be in a position of authority when Jesus comes. Their authority will be given to Jesus Christ. Jesus will overthrow them all, including the Antichrist, and no earthly rulers will be left except Jesus Christ. He will wear all kingly crowns. That's what John sees here. Revelation chapter 17, we saw this. It's talking about the kings of the earth. It says, these will wage war against the Lamb. There's the battle of Armageddon. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. They can't win. They have no chance because all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and it says, and those who are with him are the, are called, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So in chapter 17, we got a glimpse of this return of Jesus Christ at his second coming as he comes to wage war and to judge all of those who are on the earth. And so he wears all crowns. He has all authority. And it goes on, it says, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now, this one is a confusing statement. Commentators debate on this. I've seen three or four different opinions about what this means. And I've actually read... Uh, about a dozen commentaries, and several people have suggested, well, you know, it says it's a name that's unknown, but we know the name. I don't think so, okay? And let me explain this, okay? This passage gives us three names of Christ, specifically. In verse 13, which we're going to get to, it says the Word of God. Now, this is the word uh, or the name that John uses to describe him at the beginning of his gospel in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with uh, God, and the Word was God. Okay? So John calls him the Word, or the Word of God. That's a name given to him. But the Word of God indicates that Jesus came as the full revelation of God to mankind on the earth. And so in Jesus, we not only see, but we hear the Word of God. All of what we have in the Bible, called the Word of God, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, he is called the Word of God. So that's first. Second, in verse 16, we have this name, and King of kings and Lord of lords, which perfectly describes his rule when he comes to set up his millennial kingdom. So this is after earthly history. This is the kingdom time. This is when Jesus will reign as king, not when he's on the earth as a minister, but when he's on the earth in all of his majesty. And then we have this unknown name, a name which is shrouded in mystery. And let me ask you this question. What is Jesus called in heaven? What was he called before he came as a baby in the manger? What was his name? What is his name? We don't know. Okay, we can speculate and say, oh, well, he's the son of God. Well, yeah, but that's attached to his incarnation as well. We can call him the son of man, again, his incarnation. King of kings, Lord of lords, that's his position in the millennial kingdom and forever after that. But what is he called in eternity? What is the essence of his deity and his name that reflects that? We don't know because we're not told. John Phillips illustrates it this way in... in um, in going back to chapter 1 in Revelation, um, and the Apostle John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of death and hell. Jesus reveals these three names when he introduces himself to John. And he says, first, the mystery name. He didn't say what his name was. He just said, I am the first and the last. That speaks to his eternal being, his essence of deity. But he didn't give the name. 
Second, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. That's his ministry on earth. That's why he came, right? He came to live, to fulfill the law, to be the perfect person, to die for us, and then rise again and still live. And so he says, I live now, but I died. That's his earthly ministry. So that's his ministry name. So we have first his mystery name, then we have his ministry name, and third, he says, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of death and hell. That is him as in majesty as the king. And so we have names of Jesus in majesty and in ministry, talking about his earthly, king, his earthly ministry and his millennial kingdom, but what is his name in eternity? It's a mystery. We don't know what the mysterious name is. Now, commentators will say, well, it says the word of God. That's his name. Okay, but I connected that, and John connects that with his earthly ministry. So we can speculate about what this name is. We can call it faithful and true. We can call it the word of God. We can try to say, oh, well, you know, that mystery name, it's this. But Jesus said very clearly here, it's a name which nobody knows except himself. And so I believe that it's a heavenly name which we have never been introduced to. Now, when we go to heaven, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that he's going to reveal that name to us. But it's a name of mystery. And so I believe that this is a name which we may never know, not even in the kingdom. We know him as Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know him as King of kings and Lord of lords. We also know that he is God. For now, that's enough. We don't need to know this name. But it's obviously a name that speaks to his deity. And so he says, there's a name which nobody knows except himself. Going on to verse 13, it says, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, theologians will debate whether this is his own blood, reminding us of the cross, the blood that he shed on the cross, or the blood of his enemies. And I believe it's the latter. I believe it's the blood of his enemies. And I'll I'll give you some scripture why. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, that passage is prophetic about the second coming of Christ and the battle that he's going to fight on this earth at that time. And it says in Isaiah 63, Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosma? Dyed garments means stained garments. This is that glory, uh, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? And in other words, why do you have red on your clothes or blood on your clothing? And thy garments like him that treadeth in the winepress. And here's the answer in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. That's Jesus Christ talking about trampling his enemies in the battle of Armageddon. And he says, the blood of his enemies will soak the bottom of his garments. That's how bad it's going to be. And so it says in verse 13 here, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood or stained in blood. I think it's the blood of his enemies that he will trample as he comes as king. Now, we were introduced to the battle of Armageddon in chapter 14, and it it alludes to the winepress of the wrath of God there. Verse 20, it says, the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now, that's a lot of blood. It's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. And I don't even want to call it a battle. It's a massacre. Because Jesus Christ is not going to be injured. He's not going to be incapacitated at all. He's not going to be slowed down by this massive army of millions that has gathered to fight against him. He's going to just trample them from one end to the other and then rise up on the Mount of Olives in victory. That's what the Bible tells us. But in verse 14, or in chapter 14, it tells us that he tramples the wine press. And here in verse 14, in this same chapter, in chapter 19, it says, And the armies which were in heaven 
followed him upon the white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So it's not going to be just Jesus. It's going to be his armies with him. But Isaiah 63 tells us he will trample them alone as trampling in the winepress of the wrath of God. We saw that in Revelation already. So the stain on his clothing is the blood of his enemies. Now, in verse 14, it says we're going to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It doesn't say we're going to be stained. So I don't believe we're going to fight. We will be his armies that come with him, but we're not going to fight. And in fact, it doesn't even say that we are armed. In the next verse, it talks about the weapon that Jesus has. We don't have weapons. The armies come unarmed. Okay? All it says is we are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and we're following him on white horses. So who are these people this army. Now, I believe it's the church, okay? But there's more than just the church because in chapter 15, verse 6, it talks about the angels being clothed in white linen. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31, that his angels would accompany him at his return. So the angels are part of this army that he's bringing with him. But they're not going to fight. In chapter 19, we just read previously that the bride is clothed in white linen. That's us, the church. And so we will be there as well. Revelation chapter 7 tells us the tribulation saints, those who are saved during the tribulation and have died, will have white robes which are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So they will join Christ's returning army as well, I believe. And Daniel chapter 12 tells us basically that all the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ at this moment, and they will join Christ as part of his army. So what we're talking about is all believers through all time and all of his angels coming with him in glory as he comes the second time. Now, if you were on earth and saw that army descending out of heaven, what would your first thought be? outnumbered, overwhelmed. I think the first thought is not going to be, we're not going to win this battle. The first thought is going to be, that is my judge, and I am doomed. Not physically, but spiritually. And that is what going to, is what's going to happen. All of his armies are going to be wearing white, just like Jesus. But unlike Jesus, none of his armies are armed, and none of them are going to have to fight. In Isaiah, the chapter I read for you, Isaiah 63, he says this in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. Jesus himself will destroy all of those enemies. And it says that in, in Isaiah 63, he goes from Basra. That's Petra, by the way, the security place the hiding place for the Jews, that safe place that God has made for them, the remnant. But he comes, he goes from Basra to Jerusalem through that valley and completely wipes out all the enemies of the Antichrist alone. Now, we'll follow him, but we're not going to fight. Verse 15 tells us how Jesus is going to fight this battle. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Now, way back in John, in, in chapter 1, John told us about this sword. In verse 16, as he's describing Jesus, he said, out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. What is that sword? His word. It's the word of Jesus, which is the sword that destroys And so he doesn't need a weapon other than his word. Where is God's power? For salvation, Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's the word of God. It's not a performance. It's not some act. It's not something else. It's the word of God that is the power behind salvation. How did God create the world? He spoke in his word. Is power. There is power in God's word to create. There's power in God's word to save and deliver. And here there is power in God's word to destroy. And so this two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of the Lord is his word. All he needs to do is speak the word and his enemies will be destroyed. 
That's the power of his word. At the end of chapter 19, we'll get to this as we look at the battle of Armageddon. It says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And we think about the power of God, the power of the word of God. It's in his word. And this is the puzzle. As believers, as his church, people who were saved by the gospel, the word of God, why is it that the church generally seeks something else to add to God's word to make things happen? Why do we have to add to the word of God? When you need help, all the power that you need is found in the promises of God because that is his word. The power of God in his word can heal you if that is his will. The power of God in his word can provide for you. Everything is found in the power of God's word. And here, the power to destroy his enemies is found in the word of God. We already have that power available to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the only weapon we need. It's the only weapon we need against the wiles of Satan as he tries to tempt us. It's the only weapon we need to defend against doubt, against unbelief, against those times when we think God has forgotten about us. The confirmation, the comfort that we can find is found in the power of God's word. And conviction comes through the power of God's word. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. See, it's the power of God's word that's behind everything. So the only weapon that Jesus needs to fight this battle and destroy the armies of the world are his words. He speaks, and it will happen. He will speak, and they will be destroyed. Every single soldier of the earth that has come out in battle against the Lamb will be destroyed by his word at the Battle of Armageddon. And their blood will flow as deep as the horse's bridles, the Bible says. All other unredeemed people who are not in that battle but are left on earth after this battle will be judged and executed by the word of God in the sheep and goats judgment that, that follows. Matthew and, and Christ describes this in Matthew 25. But his weapon is the power of his word, and our weapon is the power of his word. Verse 16 goes on. It says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And I mentioned this already. I don't often allude to the bulletin, but I wrote a little, I always put a pastor's thought in the bulletin. It talks about a dictator. Jesus will be a dictator, but he will be a righteous dictator. No other law is allowed. No other ruler is allowed. No other allegiance is allowed. That's a dictator. But he will rule in absolute righteousness. And that's what this is talking about when it says he will rule them with a rod of iron. No mercy, no forgiveness, absolute righteousness and justice. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm about Jesus Christ. This is God actually speaking to Jesus. He says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And he goes on, he says, Be wise, therefore, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Because if you don't, you're going to be judged. And with a rod of iron, you'll be judged. We saw this same phrase in Revelation chapter 12 when we saw a picture of Israel in the woman that was fleeing from the beast. And it says in verse 5, she brought forth a man-child 
who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus Christ. Now, we get this picture of Jesus and his millennial kingdom, and everything is love, and everything is mercy, and all the softness and forgiveness that Jesus exemplified in his ministry on earth. That's not going to be in the kingdom, folks, because that time has passed. Now, it's not that we're not going to be joyful. We will be joyful because sin will be gone for us. Jesus will be in absolute control with no more Satan to deal with. Anybody who starts the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ will be a believer. And so it's all of God's people together rejoicing. And so nobody's going to be there that has a problem with his rules. In fact, we're going to be rejoicing that Jesus Christ, his way, finally takes precedence over everything else. We will get to live in righteousness with Jesus Christ without the oppression of Satan in the world. That's the great part of the kingdom. And Jesus will be at the head of it all, a perfectly righteous dictator. But he will be the only dictator that people who want to do right will ever love because he will stand for justice and righteousness. Isn't that what we seek? Isn't that what we're supposed to exemplify in our lives? Justice and righteousness? The kingdom is that place. He will rule in absolute righteousness. Anyone who breaks his law and disobeys his commands in the kingdom will be immediately judged. No trial. We don't need a trial. We don't need juries because Jesus is perfect in his judgment. And if you sin, it will be judged immediately. There's no mercy, only strict adherence to the king or swift punishment. And so it's a dictatorship. There's no other way to describe it, but it will be a perfectly righteous dictatorship. The only one that is good that has ever existed on this earth. And he can do that because he is God. Nobody else, no other man could ever do that because they are flawed with sin. And so it says that he will rule with a rod of iron. As God, doesn't he deserve our absolute obedience and loyalty and worship? That's what the kingdom will be. We will get the freedom to give him our absolute obedience, worship, and loyalty. Because sin will be conquered completely. Now, there will be people who are born on the earth and because they are human beings, they will still have a sin nature. We won't have Satan on the earth to tempt us, but that sin nature is strong. And so people who are born, there will be some who rebel. And the Bible tells us, as we'll get to the millennial kingdom, the Bible says at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loosed once more, and he will gather all of those rebellious hearts together to wage war against Jesus Christ one last time. And they will all be destroyed at that point. And Satan will finally be cast into the lake of fire forever. So we have this picture of Jesus Christ as he will come back at his second coming. It's not a meek and mild savior. It's not a little baby in a manger. It is the great judge and king in power and authority. Absolute righteousness and justice. And anyone at that point who has not submitted and bowed the knee to him will be destroyed so that Jesus can begin his kingdom in absolute righteousness. Verse 16, on his vesture and on his thigh, a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we already saw the significance of these names, that Jesus will come to rule over all people as the supreme ruler of all the earth in his kingdom. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. John describes this name as written on his vesture or on his robe, and then it's also on his thigh. Now, commentators say that this, I, this picture that John's giving us is that he wears this banner with his title across it, okay, as kings often did. It was a, a, a banner that would be draped across his shoulders and across his chest, and his title will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it will also be on his thigh. 
where normally an earthly king would carry a sword. But all he needs is his name because the, word, the power is in his word. So this is the Jesus that will be coming back to earth. And if you're a believer today, then you're already part of that kingdom that he's going to be setting up spiritually. But that day will be the beginning of that physical kingdom, and we're going to come back with him as he begins that, that kingdom on this earth. We haven't been ushered into that kingdom yet physically, but we can be assured that it's coming because he is true and faithful. And if he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And that alone should give us comfort. This Jesus that we saw today is the Jesus that fights for us in heaven. This Jesus that we saw today is the Jesus that will come back and will rule the earth in absolute righteousness. And we will be with him. And we won't have to open the newspaper and see all the garbage that's going on in government. Because the government will be perfect under Jesus Christ. So that's something to look forward to. But for now, we're still in the battle. We're still fighting Satan. We're still fighting sin. We're still fighting ourselves. But with that hope and that comfort, that's what gives us strength to remain faithful, to remain dedicated, to persevering, to be overcomers until he calls us home for the wedding that we talked about last week. That's the next thing that happens. But I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to that great party, that marriage feast of the Lamb, after all his enemies are destroyed. But until then, we have to remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us a picture of our Lord and Savior here and the great power that he has and the perfect righteousness with which he judges. And Lord, even as he comes back the second time to wage war against all his enemies, Lord, he will wage war in righteousness because in his perfection there is only holiness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we see Jesus Christ, that as we get a good picture of who he is and what he represents, that it would inspire and drive us to become more like him even as we live this life on this earth. And Lord, we know that many of the battles we fight now seem to be lost, but ultimately you will win. And so we trust your strength. We trust your word and your promises. And we trust you to keep us faithful until that day you call us home. Thank you again for your word, the encouragement that it gives us. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.